0: Coming up on this week's show, LimeWire is back. Play your original Xbox online again. And we chat to Core Design's Peter Connolly about composing Tomb
1: Raider. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books you should so check out. I'm Too Young to Die, the ultimate guide to first-person shooters covering that incredible genre from 1992 to 2002. That's coming out a bit later on this year. You can check out all about that and the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 336. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Robbie Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another hour-ish of retro gaming goodness, where we get to completely nerd out about our favourite topic in the world, classic video games, bringing you up to speed on all the big goings-on in the world of retro from over the last seven days, some big stories to get into this week. And of course a very special guest in the second half of the show as well. Now, actually, if you enjoyed last week's episode, we had a really good reaction to that when we're talking about Rares Road to the Game Boy with Paul Makachev. And I think, you know, we do get interviews occasionally on this show where we could probably do at least double or triple the length that we recorded. Yeah, <laughs> that was definitely totally. one of those. And it's the, so uh, many great stories. We
0: didn't even cover like Donkey Kong Land, which is just fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> so many
2: titles in that. We, we, we started in the 80s. And we got to like the early 90s and we were like, yeah, we're, we're, we're over an hour now. And as Dan says, the retro hour-ish, <laughs> you know, with the news and everything. No more than 90 so, minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more like 90 minutes. So um, a follow-up to that is uh, definitely on the cards, isn't it, Ravi? Yeah,
0: totally. Like, And we're going to actually follow up with that in Norway, which is going to be mm. really awesome because we are going to Retro Mesa, which is happening on the 20th to so the 21st of August. And... They have got some wicked guests. Like, we went there before, and it was an amazing time
1: because they had this fantastic rare panel, didn't they? Yeah, we went, what was it, 2019? I know since the pandemic, time's just kind of messed up in my mind. So the fact that, you know, the the last couple of years just kind of feel like they've all merged into one. But yeah, we went out there, and it's a great little event. If you're anywhere near Sandy Sandifjord... In Norway. Or even, I mean, you know, if you live nearby, I mean, it's like, what is it, an hour and 15 minutes flight from here in the UK? Yeah. And and if you haven't
0: been to Norway before, it's a beautiful place just for a weekend visit. And it's amazing, like, the companies behind this event. There's, like, Nintendo, Bandai Namco. It's, like, Lego. You know, some really big names. And uh, it's a really nice event, actually, because we get to meet everyone from those Scandinavian countries. And, uh, you know, there's even people that come from the Arctic Circle. And it's just like, wow, amazing talking to them. But this year... They have got an amazing like lineup, Yeah, so they're going to be having John St. John from uh, Duke Nukem. Of course, the voice of Duke Nukem, but also the voice of Big the Cat. They're going to have Chris Marlow as well, who was from Conker's Bad Fur Day and Sea of Thieves. Of course, Paul Makacek as well, because he also worked on Banjo-Kazooie, which we didn't even cover mm-hmm. as well. And David Doak, you know, uh, the legendary guy from the silicon graphics units and uh, rare who did golden eye 007 and of course kevin bayliss who did battletoads and there might be a few more guests announced as well so this is going to be a mental event i think i'm going to get joe and lock him in a sauna
2: <laughs> See <how he> reacts. <laughs> you were saying that to me earlier today uh, i am so happy that i can make it like i've run out of annual leave at work and I had to get like the planets to align and people to cover my shifts and you know, it was it, I had to literally bend over backwards to get the time off work for my rotor to come out for August and it turned out it was my weekend off anyway. Um <laughs> which was really funny. But I am so, so, so happy that I can make it this year and I'm I'm really, really, really looking forward to it. But I don't know about you, Dan, but my missus turned around today and said, I'd love to go to Norway and it just gave me that dead eyed look. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, unlucky. Yeah. <laughs> you know what, though? Now, now that everyone knows that Handsome Joe is coming to Norway, I've got to fill in the demographic of this event. It might be suddenly 90% female. I mean, you know, oh, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it is going to be amazing. The first panels that we've done, we're going to be on stage doing a live podcast pretty much. We'll be recording some of the panels to play out on the show as well. So I know we do have, you know, quite a big listener base in the Norway area. So if you've uh, never made it along to a retro hour live event, you want to come and see us or, you know, want to fly out for the weekend, like we said, Retro Messa coming up on the 20th to the 21st of August in Sandifjord. And I'll put a link to that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before that, we have got, of course, an amazing guest this week on the show. We're going to be talking about Core Designs and Tomb Raider, which I know we've done previous episodes about Core Designs and Tomb Raider, but it's been quite a while since we visited it. And actually, our guest today he was integral to some of those later Tomb Raider games that we haven't really spoke all that much about yeah we've kind of stopped at tomb raider 2 and uh we
0: had Nathan McCreon from uh, core designs previously and uh Nathan kind of did the soundtrack and like laid the foundations for the tomb raider games and uh Peter Connolly and Peter Connolly who we had today he's kind of continued that taking a lot of influence and uh ended up composing the tomb raider games and the later ones but you know they're really interesting because, I don't know about you, did you guys kind of get later into the um, Tomb Raider titles, like uh, Tomb Raider to-
2: 3, Tomb uh, Raider- The Last
0: Revelation, and Tomb Raider Chronicles 3 is actually
2: my most played Tomb Raider. Um, oh, okay. I-, I played that more, uh, I, don't- I didn't even have Tomb Raider 1, I played that much later on, but... Um, tomb raider 2 and 3 were like my key tomb raiders i actually think 3 was the best probably because it had like the the quad bike and the dinosaur and all you know the t-rex boss and stuff like that in it but yeah no amazing amazing games amazing soundtracks um so it's really cool that you guys kind of like you say you always stop at number two so it's really cool to, you know to hear and talk about you know after that
0: yeah and it's a real progression of like technology and music as well because there's a whole orchestral thing that kind of happened with Tomb Raider where, where it got more into a grand orchestra style. And eventually on the Angel of Darkness, they actually recorded with uh, the London Symphony Orchestra in Abbey Road Studios. You know, the legendary studios in London where the Beatles were walking across that uh, zebra crossing, you know, absolutely amazing. So it's a really interesting interview. And, you know, Peter's the audio designer for Watch Dogs. He's also done um Driver San Francisco. He's done so many things, so it's just a fantastic to have him on and have a have a audio episode. We've not done one for a while, have we?
1: They're always your favorite on the Rev. Oh yeah, I'd love guy, to know yeah. oh. about audio. So yeah, it's going to be a really interesting chat. I mean, we kind of go from like the Commodore 64 era right up to like, you know, the modern day pretty much. So really good chat with our special guest, Peter Connolly. He's coming up on the show in around 30 minutes from now. Now, of course, before we get into our guest, we like to update you on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming over the last week. And this is really cool. Now, Xbox Live, I mean, that was such a revolution when I first played an Xbox online. But obviously... There were some dedicated fans that were devastated when the original Xbox Live from the OG Xbox was shut down. Back, I think it was like 2009, wasn't it? I remember 2010. That.
2: If they shut it down, 2010. Yeah,
1: I remember that story about you know those kind of last Halo Two players. Yeah, who did everything to keep their consoles online and connected. You know, mm. I think some of them managed to do like a couple of months until one of the you had a power cut or something like that. And it went off, but now it turns out there is going to be a very simple way. For you to play your original Xbox, the 2001 model, online and actually bring those classic online games back to life. Yeah, it's
0: uh, really interesting. This is, um, I I don't know about you, but I used to love the original Xbox site. And those were the days when people would do voice chat and it would be like crazy voice chat. You know, it was like uh, you play a lot of games now and there is that voice chat option, but people don't actually use that it was great cuz it had that whole kind of adding friends as well and then uh and the voice changer voice changer. changer i think i think they also had messages right so you could leave messages for people like little voicemails and stuff and uh, that that was always a a good source of entertainment um i do remember though playing um xbox live and of course halo was like one of the absolutely huge titles and uh it it, it was great to play
1: online yeah because it has been a way to play original Xbox games online, kind of. Because there were some games that allowed you to do local multiplayer with a LAN connection. And there's been a service called um, Excellent Kai that I remember trying probably about 10 years ago. And you'd have to have a, a PC that you plugged your Xbox into via an Ethernet cable. And then it would kind of act as um, like another machine and it would like, allow you like to kind do... Of
0: bridging it onto...
1: Yeah, yeah, so but but it would only work on games that are like a, a LAN option. But now, I mean, this looks like it's pretty much going to restore all the functionality of the original Xbox Live. This is a service that's coming out soon called Insignia. Now, at the moment, to use this, you do actually need a modded original Xbox because you need to get like the the hard disk number and the the Ethernet address, all all the stuff. That yeah, you there's can't like a few,
0: few credentials, isn't there? That you kind of Your need MAC address and that kind of thing. Kind of attached to it, yeah.
1: Yeah, but they're saying that what they're going to do is, when this comes out properly, there's going to be um, kind of a a save game injection mod that you can run on any Xbox, you know, retail Xbox, and it will then enable it to play online. So you don't need to do any soft mods or anything like that. And so far, there's going to be 13 games that are going to be available when this launches, including, and we've got some classics in here, Counter-Strike, Crimson Skies, Madness 3, Fantasy Star Online, Episode 1 and 2, of Star Wars, Jedi Academy, Street Fighter Anniversary Collection. Unfortunately, they're saying that Xbox um, original Halo 2 is not going to be on that list to start with, which I imagine that was probably the most popular online game, wasn't it? Um, but they're saying, they are working on that, but apparently it needs a little bit more work to implement it. I
2: was, I was going to say that surely they're missing a trick by not putting Halo 2 on there, but it's good to hear that they're working on it, but it just works on original Xbox. It doesn't work with the backwards compatibility. So you can't yeah, I think boot some these of games them, up on a three sixty or anything like that. I think some of be. them
0: are, are like backwards compatible, but um not not with the service, you know. Yeah, it's like yeah. a
2: separate thing, you know? Yeah, that's what I meant. Like a lot of these games can be played on three sixty and Xbox Series X and stuff like that, but it will only work with the original Xbox, which you know, as Dan said, the retail Xbox, which I think is really cool.
0: I think it's really awesome and it's got a lot of nostalgia for me, like adding your gamer tag and stuff. But you know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see them actually release like the scratch cards that you used to get. So you used to get for you like Xbox Live membership and gold pass and stuff. You'd have a scratch card where you'd scratch it out and you get like a subscription code and put it in.
1: <laughs> not, maybe even just a virtual one of them would be really good fun. Yeah, I'm not sure whether they're gonna be charging for this. Um, at the moment, I mean, it's it's in beta at the moment. So the best video, obviously, MVG. You know, we always recommend his videos if you if you want to check out kind of where it is so far. I imagine, you know, because Microsoft would probably kick up a bit of a stink if they were charging for something like this, I imagine. So I've got a feeling it's probably going to be free. Um, but there is a Twitter account if you want to kind of keep an eye on where the beta is right now. And obviously, I'll link up MGV's video um, in the show notes as well. But I think it's awesome because it, it also kind of made me sad. I remember reading in the news that day that kind of countdown to the original Xbox Live going offline. And I've kind of been waiting for like the PS3 and the 360 to go offline, which I've got a feeling can't be too far away now. But, you know, the fact that the fan community can do something like this and bring them back online kind of makes it feel like, you know, all's not lost and there is going to be a way to kind of play those classic games online, you know, in the future. And I think there's a benefit to having it kind of
0: like on a Twitter account or online where you can notify everyone because you can say, hey, we're all going to play it this time because let's get real, there's not going to be yeah. that many matches as there was like back in the days. You know, when you were doing matchmaking, you were just instantly chucked into one.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I've tried it with, you know, the X Link and stuff, which, as I mentioned before, that kind of needs a bit more work, which I imagine, you know, the fact you've got to kind of run it on a PC and connect it, you know, it's a bit more effort. So that probably puts a lot of people off doing it. But yeah, I mean, you're kind of limited to how many people are actually still playing original Xbox games and stuff. But, I mean, they often do that. They do it on Twitter or Discord, you know, say everyone's going to be on Saturday night, 8pm, you know, that kind of thing. So you can actually schedule a match in advance, which um, I've seen people do that with, um, you know, Quake Arena and stuff on the Dreamcast, if you're playing that on third-party servers now. But it is really cool that just, like, these services can be brought back to life and... You know, you can enjoy these experiences in the future as well. So very cool. Um, no release date is yet, but we'll keep an eye on that. Apparently not too far away now. And then we'll put everything we know in the show notes at theretrohour.com. I know you lads are massive Pokemon fans. <laughs> um, this is an interesting headline on Game Rant. Pokemon fan builds a cartridge that makes Game Boy function as a Pokedex. Now, I've got to say, not being a Pokemon fan... What is a Pokedex? I, I was going to say, Dan, tell us
2: what a Pokedex is. Um, <laughs> Let me just Google. I, I guess the best way I can describe it is um, an encycl- a digital encyclopedia for the Pokemon and essentially a smartphone before smartphones were a thing. You know, when the cartoon came out in the 90s, the main character, Ash Ketchum, has like a a red smartphone. The only way I can kind of, you know, uh, yeah, they, describe it. they probably
0: it. could have done it in book form, but
2: it looks quite modern, but that's uh yeah sort of so he gets out the little pokedex the little red device and he'll hold it to a pokemon and then it will talk to him and tell him what the pokemon is and stats about it so it'll say this is a you know a grass type pokemon that likes to live in the forest and it's weak against fire um so that's my uh my simplistic description of a pokedex with a pokemon encyclopedia pretty yeah action. pretty much does that make sense ravi would you agree with yeah. that yeah exactly. yeah
0: exactly that that's exactly what it is and like A user on Reddit called uh, Queen Leafer has created, well, shown a video of a custom Game Boy cartridge that actually functions as a Pokedex. Now, it's quite interesting because there's a lot of information in there. And um, interestingly, this isn't one of those things where it's been put out there and it's like, you know, you guys can download this now or this is a project I'm doing. The user's been very quiet about this and, uh, you know, uh, not really put much information about it. Well, other than a video of it and uh, showing a, a Wi-Fi-enabled Game Boy cart playing it.
2: Well, it doesn't surprise me because of Pokemon's Nintendo, isn't it? Ah, so yes. We, we all know <laughs> what Nintendo are like. Um, But yeah, no, essentially it's, um, you know, I wasn't sure what to expect, whether like it was a case of you hold the, about the Game Boy up to like something and it tells you With what it Game is. With the Game Boy camera. <laughs> obviously it's not quite that um advanced, but essentially it's a Wi-Fi cartridge that you plug into your Game Boy. Um, It's an original Game Boy, which is really cool. And essentially, you type in a Pokemon, and it will come up and give you the Pokedex information about
1: that Pokemon. Um, So this is connecting to the internet to download this information?
2: I I believe so, yeah. So, you know, you connect it, and it connects to the Wi-Fi. You type in, type it in, and it does actually say on the screen, Wikipedia. So I'm assuming it gives you the Wikipedia description (laughs) of the Pokemon, um, which I guess is a really good database, because of... You know, Pokemon's so famous. I, I imagine there's probably a Wikipedia page about every single Pokemon on there. I was going to
1: say, how many Pokemons are there? There's 151
2: the in the original series, in the original run um, I want to say there's like 800 now, 750 of them or something like that. I could be completely See, if, wrong. if
1: the person that made this was actually writing them all up, 800 of them themselves, that would be pretty hardcore for something yeah. that you're not even going to release to everyone. To yeah, your own personal use.
2: Um, but yeah, no, it just it looks like it uses Wikipedia. But um, as, as Ravi says, um, quite a few editors have been saying, "Can I buy this? Can I can I get one?" And uh, you know, Queen Queen Leifer is pretty much saying, "No, it's a one-off," and people are really disappointed, but. I, c- I can see why because of um, I can't remember if Nintendo outright own Pokemon but they, they have a big link to Pokemon um, you know mm. they only tend to come out on, on Nintendo consoles and everything so I imagine there's that the fear of God there
1: or that the, the user might just be mean you know yeah maybe well I, know. <laughs> well
0: I also think there's that whole thing of like you know you make a project for yourself you do something for yourself and then everyone goes why isn't this a product that I can buy instantly and it's like yeah, maybe I just want to make a Pokedex for myself, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, it doesn't, everything doesn't have to kind of become a project or, or be shared with everyone. I think, I think it's quite interesting. I, I've always wondered, like, has that ever been a copy of the Bible or something that's ever come out on the Game Boy?
1: Well, I, I feel i feel like the, attacks, i feel like that I, is a thing <laughs> that's actually, pro- LGL's probably covered it yeah
2: probably or avgn's probably played it or something um but i had a little google there's 905 pokemon now so i was close um i can tell you what i could probably name the first 150 but that's it <laughs> yeah that's an after
1: hours episode yeah right?
0: that's an after hours <laughs> yeah, episode absolutely. or if i can get my hands on this game boy pokedex <laughs> well, let's do an impression of every pokemon
1: I mean, these, these little Wi-Fi cartridges, I mean, I guess it uses those, um, you know, the ESP8266 little Wi-Fi modules, which yeah. you don't can put into anything these days, and you can get them off uh, Amazon for like three or four pounds. So in terms of technologically, I mean, it, it's not that advanced, I guess. I mean, you can kind of put those in anything, but it is very cool seeing an original Game Boy online. I mean, the, the interface kind of reminds me a bit of um, when you used to get WAP on your mobile phone, you know, that kind of text-based internet service yeah. that was around in the early Maybe we'll get like a
0: Game Boy browser that's <laughs> kind yeah. of like everything cut out of it and all the stuff reduced to just text, but uh, you could kind of... There's of- got to
1: be a link port or something, you know, the text-based browser, there's got to be one yeah. for Yeah,
0: sure. it's coming, it's coming eventually, I think, with stuff like this coming out, yeah. And I guess the reason that it is Wi-Fi and it's receiving that information is it probably... Won't be able to store everything on there, but
1: I don't know. It's just tech, so maybe. Yeah, so um, if you want to check out the video of something you can't have, I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com as well. Now, were you a fan of um, Quake on the Sega Saturn, Joe? I have it, <laughs>
2: and I've played it. But yeah, I, it, it's a it's a very cool port, the Quake Sega Saturn version, because of it's quite different to all the other ports, because of it uses the Power Slave engine. Um, mm. Which we've actually covered on the show, which before. was called Exhumed in a few yeah. other countries, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, it was called Power Slave in America, and then zoomed in European territories. Um, I believe it could be the other way around; you could be right. But yeah, the the, the Quake version of the Sega Saturn version of Quake, it was um, it was kind of similar to the original Doom because of the engine wasn't as powerful as the actual Quake engine, so they had to take a lot of you know liberties with it. So the weapons mm. are sprite based rather than three D models so it kind of reminds me of that original doom with the sprites uh, but it was also unique because if it actually had quite a few unique levels in it so you know the kind of there's a lot of quake fans you know the quake population always seen i say always seen a lot of them see you know the, the quake ver- the sega Saturn version of quake as very unique so interestingly uh it's being ported to the pc and this isn't a emulation port or anything this is a full from the ground up fan project port which is really cool
0: it is pretty interesting because it is like you know you're, you're putting it in a different engine mm. and uh, that's going to create like different effects like i've seen like uh, that the the text in game is like animated in it there's like the way that the weapons are used uh, are done as sprites and like yeah. corpses disappear after certain stuff there's like Coloured animated lighting effects and stuff. And for a Quake user, this is probably a like different experience from you know, the mm. its software engine that they were originally using. And also like the video has a, a Sega logo on it at the beginning. I don't know if that will be in this port.
2: I hope so. But um, it's been made by a fan, JC... Where are they? Uh, called JC Erisden. Uh, and essentially, she's actually started working on it around the time the Quake... Uh, the H- quake hd version that came out last year she started working on it around the same time that actually came out so september 2021 and you know she said that it was quite a slow burn to begin with but uh, recently she's actually managed to pour all the levels over to pc and it's working in the engine it's generating the levels really well and the most recent update from july 2017 is she's now got all the sprites so you know like the sprite weapons like you just mentioned Ravi, they're all working in the engine now so, you know, her aim is to have it a one-for-one for one, for one remake. Like, she doesn't want to cut any corners. She doesn't want to change anything. She doesn't want to use anything from the, any, of, any of the other versions of Quake. Um, and she wants it to have, you know, that Sega Saturn look to it as well, which, you know, from the screenshots and from the video so far, she's got a couple of videos out, you know, testing the sprite weapons and stuff like that with the sound effects and stuff. It's looking really cool. And then, interestingly, there's actually a hidden voice-acted, Comic book that you can
1: unlock. Yeah, have you seen that? The Dank and Scuzzy
2: story. I, I haven't seen it, but no, it, it it's a comic book, like a voice acted comic book in the Se- exclusive to the Sega Saturn version, and that is going to be in this PC version as well. What what is that? Is it like? Is it a silly thing or?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a hidden Easter egg in the game, yeah, so I've watched a YouTube video of it before we recorded. I haven't seen it in the game, but yeah, it's pretty much that, just a little jokey kind of fair enough, voice acting comic, yeah. So the fact that the Easter eggs have been ported into WIT2, I think, you know, obviously that's a fan favourite for fans of the, the Sega Saturn version of Quake, so it's nice to see that in there as well, and those four original levels that didn't feature in any other version yeah, of Quake like, that we, haven't been ported anywhere else. We
0: hear a lot about Doom ports and the variety and the difference of Doom on different systems. But I don't hear that much about Quake and Quake on different systems and how they change. So I'm interested to actually check this one out.
1: Yeah, it kind of follows on from, you know, we're talking about the the N64 version of Doom and how that's been ported to modern systems a couple of weeks ago, weren't we? Yeah. Um, and there are, you know, certain systems do have their own custom versions and kind of whether just went a bit, you know, different and they made separate levels and different graphics. So I think for completionist's sake, it is good to have those available on modern platforms as well. Because a lot of people, I mean, I've never played Saturn version of Quake. I think I've got it in my collection. Don't think I've ever really played it, though. So it will be quite interesting to see this properly. So if you want to keep an eye on that project, it's in development right now, um, hopefully available to play very soon. I'll put that in our show notes as well. Now, we need to talk about the comeback of LimeWire in just a moment, which is like the most oh, bizarre no. story have seen recently. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a very interesting controller for the new Mega Drive Mini 2 in just a minute. Before we do that, though, it is uh, our favourite weekend of the month coming up on Sunday evening. We're going to crack open a drink get to completely geek out with some of our good mates because it's going to be our patrons hangout on Sunday evening. And it does feel like these come around so quickly these days. But if you haven't hopped on one of these before, now would be a very good time to join us on Patreon. Sunday evening, we're all going to get together. It is just a complete geek fest, isn't it? We have so much fun.
2: Yeah, man, I I absolutely love it. And... I'm just accepting now and getting it like excited that like I I go on it and I get so excited from talking to everybody that I just go and buy games and spend money like I really 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 enjoy it and don't fight it. I'm yet. not fighting it anymore. I'm just accepting what it is. But I absolutely love it when new people join as well. You know, yep. and, you know, not everybody has to join in, you don't have to come on camera or anything like that if you just want to come and watch the chatter and, you know, sit back and have a drink or even play some original Xbox while you're doing it or anything like that you can do. But it is always really cool when people get involved and show off what they've been buying, show off their, you know, their games rooms or in some cases their game museums, you know, it's really exciting, fun stuff.
0: I also, uh, there's one thing that we don't really mention that much, which is basically we do a couple of extra stories for the patrons. Yeah. So if you're listening to the podcast, you know, you may get a bit more than the usual retro kind of over the hour. <laughs> it may get a bit longer because we do two
1: extra stories for patrons and there's lots of exclusive bonuses. Yeah, you get the normal episode ad free. You get it early most weeks as well. Like Ravi said, you get about you know, 10, 15 minutes of extra content in there as well. So, very good time to join us on Patreon. And I'm pleased to say, we've had a couple of new Patreon members come along in the last week. So, that means we get to hear Ravi's lovely singing voice. <laughs> Hall of Fame. And making the Hall of Fame this week, a massive thank you to our latest Patreon supporters Edwin Vanden Oosterkamp, Michael Nicholson who both joined us on Patreon this week. We massively appreciate your support. And if you'd like to find yourself in the Hall of Fame, all the details to join us on Patreon are on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, we're going to be chatting to Peter Connolly about composing Tomb Raider in just a few minutes. Before that, a couple more quick stories to get through. Um, Now, this is a headline I didn't expect to read in 2022. LimeWire is back. It's bad. Maybe not everyone used to use LimeWire no back in wants the day. It back. <laughs> <laughs> what was LimeWire then, Ravi, for the uninitiated? I'm sure L- you know.
0: LimeWire was uh, when the craze of peer to peer networks came out. Um, P2P, uh, before you download it off a website, um, and then Napster came out, and you would download off another computer and you would start sharing your files. And then Napster got knocked down by Metallica and Dr. Dre and a lot of people that were angry at them and they turned into a kind of legitimate service and started changing it. Up popped a lot of different services and they were stuff like LimeWire, a BearShare. I
1: think
0: Kazoo was another one. Kazar, Kazar, that was was it, yeah. yeah. Audio Galaxy, I remember that
1: one. Audio Galaxy was a good one. Yeah, and they Um, were
0: on, I think it was the Gnutella Network, which was... um, a very strange kind of network. There was Direct Connect Plus as well. And uh, all I remember about LimeWire, it was so dodgy. Like, you download something, it would never be what it was labelled. Probably contain a Trojan (laughs) or a virus. And uh,
1: Yeah, trying to get an MP3 file and it was a .exe.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think LimeWire was like, you know, Napster, you'd actually be able to find the content until before the filters came. LimeWire, it was so hit or miss, you know, you'd have to download like four copies and then run them whilst you've got all your virus checkers and everything
2: going. Um, Yeah. What are your memories of LimeWire? I was always quite good with LimeWire, you know, making sure stuff wasn't viruses and stuff, but I showed my mum LimeWire and she just destroyed our computer, you know, (laughs) Um, I, I really tried to teach her like, you know, how to spot things, you know, what's an MP3 and stuff like that. Um, But I also always remember in around about 2003, a friend of mine in art class saying that he was downloading the Daredevil film over LimeWire. And I was like, oh my God, that's going to take all weekend. And he was like, yeah, man. And like I came in on the Friday and I uh, came in on the Monday morning over the weekend. I was like, "How was the Daredevil like film?" And he was like, "Oh, I downloaded and I played it. It was the Wild Formby's movie." <laughs> 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 and I was so like, "Oh," buyer. and I was yeah. like, "Oh, that that was disappointing." And I was like, "What did you do?" And He was like, "Well, I watched the Wild Formby's movie. It took me two days to download." So. um, Got some you know,
1: there, there were two two reasons stuff like that happened, I remember. It was either users who wanted a bit of kudos and they would, you know, intentionally relabel something to make it seem like they had a new movie first. But also I remember I remember downloading a movie over something like LimeWire and then, you know, again, it took like all weekend. And then watching it and it was literally just a Sony logo, like zooming in and out, like <laughs> Sony had actually uploaded a fake movie onto the server, you know, to waste people's time intentionally.
2: Wasn't Wasn't there, I could be wrong, but wasn't there like a video of like, or um, it might have been Wire, but it was Madonna complaining about people illegally downloading her music. Like, and she uploaded uploaded it as a song and it became like the most downloaded thing in the world.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was the uh, Record Industry Association of America, the RIAA, and uh, they were the guys that kind of, got the stars on and uh, started shutting down Napster and stuff. And to be honest, they were right, let's face it. Look at stuff like iTunes and Spotify now. People will pay for that stuff.
1: But but I think they wouldn't have come along if it wasn't for services oh, like Napster. No, because the sure. record industry yeah. desperately wanted us to pay 18 quid for a CD album instead of you know getting it for free, obviously. Yeah,
0: and they, they blamed a lot of stuff on there. And I do, do even remember this. When LimeWire went down or it added blocking code, FrostWire came. Um, in uh, 2004, if you remember Frostwire, which was like another version of LimeWire. Why are we talking about LimeWire? Well,
1: that's the thing, because obviously these were... I mean, before you could buy legitimate music online, for a couple of years, this was really the only way to get MP3s. And then suddenly, obviously, the record industry realised, right, we need legit services, iTunes, and all that game along, Spotify later on. But really, I mean, it was a a thing of the time, the early 2000s, these peer-to-peer networks. But now... 20 years later, LimeWire has returned, kind of. Now, it's been relaunched as an NFT marketplace, and they're saying this is for art and entertainment. Initially, it's going to be focused on music, uh, but the thing is, if you watch the advert, and I'll put this in our show notes as well, there's an article all about it on Adweek, but the the trailer that they've got for it really heavily leans on nostalgia, doesn't it? it does but
0: everything's wrong in it like it's so wrong yeah like they've got they're playing soldier boy which for a start if you're gonna launch
1: something don't have any association with soldier boy (laughs) because you know and that song was from 2007 which i don't know about you guys i wasn't using you look at this they've got like a beige pc with a crt monitor and the burning cds I wasn't doing that I, in 2007. I was 2007. far beyond that. <laughs> 2007, yeah. yeah. And my iPhone in 2007. Yeah, and
0: uh, they've got like that modern kind of boombox that came out like a lot later on as well and stuff. And it is interesting because it's kind of like they're focusing on just literally piracy in the in the in, yeah. in the advert there. Downloading an MP3. Uh, it's the right MP3 and they're straight away like listening to the Soldier Boy track. And then it zooms into the future and they're grown up
1: and they run upstairs and download
0: NFTs.
1: (laughs) So it's really, I mean, the the only thing this has got in common with LimeWire is the name. And obviously that was founded back in 2000 by a guy called Mark Gorton, who was a a former Wall Street trader. Uh, But now it's owned by a completely different company, two brothers called Paul and Julian, who now own the LimeWire trademark, which I'm actually quite surprised. being you know, the fact that it was a, a piracy service. I'm quite surprised it was even a trademark that you could sell. Yeah,
0: like I thought. You know, these had become too toxic, and uh, everybody had kind of moved on from these brands. But actually, thinking about it, Napster did like legit- legitimize a bit, maybe. And I think yeah. you
1: know, it's at an age now where people who use those are going to be nostalgic for it. I mean, I've actually got a Napster T-shirt that I ordered randomly off eBay one day. And uh, I wore it to work and I was like, oh my God, I remember Napster. So I think it is kind of, you know, that we are 20 years on. There's kind of a generation that's becoming nostalgic for their youth that was, you know, the early 2000s. But really, this, I mean, NFTs have got a very bad rap and obviously we're not the podcast that really talks about NFTs. But really the saying, that the aim of this is going to be to kind of claw back a bit from these big services like Spotify, and put it back into the hands of the users and the artists as well and kind of cut out that middleman, which is you know, very ambitious. I think they'd probably um, do better
0: if they just did music,
1: <laughs> to be yeah, honest. they are at yeah. first, apparently. Okay, you know, I mean, so there
0: so, is a music aspect of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's going to be what it is at first. It's pretty much going to be to, to sell NFTs to, to buy music on there. But I think, you know, the, the fact that NFTs have kind of got that reputation of being that bored apio club, you know, millionaire kids who just want to waste money on their own JPEG file that no one else could have, you know, be part of an exclusive club. It gets a bad rep for that, but I think the underlying technology, you know, it it does kind of seem like if you're getting into kind of Web3 and the metaverse and all these other buzzwords right now, it'd be interesting if LimeWire ended up being kind of one of the the changing... (laughs) <laughs> points of the industry there, wouldn't it? It actually ended up becoming, like, really uh, pivotal in that What an change.
0: awful future we're living in. If you went in the uh, past and you were like, right, is <laughs> the future, <laughs> you like, no,
1: <laughs> we're screwed. Yeah. yeah, if you were those kids in that video workout 20 years later and you're still using LimeWire, that'd be a pretty depressing future, wouldn't and it? And still like listening to Soldier Boy.
2: I- I'd love yeah. to be able to turn <laughs> around and say, I still use it, guys, <laughs> like...
0: <laughs> the last guy on the original LimeWire. Do you guys remember mp3.com as well? That was a... that was No, I yeah. don't
1: know that one. Do you remember, though, what they used to do? That They'd make examples of people. I remember hearing stories about, you know, like a, a kid who downloaded a song. Yeah, wasn't there a like, um, like like kid or granny who downloaded, like, nursery rhymes,
0: and they were like, right, yeah. let's sue her to hell. <laughs> it was yeah. like... A, they sued them for, like, $10 million. Yeah, and, for, like, yeah, the nursery rhymes or something.
1: Yeah, which I think, you know, was a big reason that kind of those services faded away, obviously, on top of the legitimate um, services like iTunes and stuff as well. So, uh, yeah, interesting to see it back. I mean, they're using the original font and the original logo and everything as well. So uh, really just trading on nostalgia, which for something that kind of positions itself as, you know, the future is an interesting concept. But, um yeah, LimeWire is back. So if you want to read more about that, I'll put that in our show notes as well. Now, one more quick story to get into. Uh, Mega Drive Mini 2, I think that's been announced now that it's coming out in October in America. That has been confirmed now. Uh, but it seems like as well, there is going to be a rather interesting controller that Sega have announced for the Mega Drive Mini 2. And uh, this thing looks a little bit odd, to say the least, for most Mega Drive games.
2: Yeah, so essentially this is a it's based on the classic sharp cyber stick which i'm not actually familiar with but from my research essentially you used it for afterburner with the original mega drive in japan and essentially this is going to be a usb version of it which will work with the mega drive mini which has recently been announced that it is getting a western release on the same day as the japanese uh, release but as as far as i know there's been no talk on the controller this, you know, USB cyber stick controller coming out in the West um, at the moment is just a Japanese exclusive, but it is going to be fully compatible with the Mega Drive Mini 2, and it's obviously going to be USB powered, which begs the question, will it work on other, you know, USB kind of devices? Can you play SNES Mini with it and stuff like that? Um, it may it probably it, probably yeah. we will work, you know, just sort of like mapping and stuff like that. I, I don't know about you guys, but essentially it looks like a flight stick to me. And, you know, and the other games it's compatible with are written in Japanese, so I'm not too sure. There's not many
1: of them, though, is There's there? There's
2: not many of them, no. So I'm, I'm I'm assuming it's working on kind of Mega Drive flight sim games or flight combat games, uh, which is pretty interesting. But um, as an avid Sega fan, I'm really not familiar with this. What about you, Ravi? Are you Have you seen this before? I'm kind of clueless about this. It does look
0: like a PC flight stick mixed with mm. like a mech walker kind of thing. Yeah. But- <laughs> Or an old 90s VR system. But I'm surprised about the size of it as well. You know, you're releasing a mini console. You know, have this tiny console and then this huge kind of uh, stick. It kind of goes against the um, Japanese yeah. philosophy of, you know, small and cute. And yeah. What
2: they're kind of doing with the mini console. are sitting with this great big controller on your lap. But, you know, yeah. I guess it's for, you know, the nostalgia of it. You know, sitting there on your couch playing After Burner 2, you know, flying through the sky like, shooting you know shooting down planes and stuff like that on you oh, i don't you think mega this drive thing is on my catch. yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> it um, does look cool though you know like i've you know everybody's used to playing with like joypads and stuff maybe this is just gonna like take you back with this uh kind of real arcade style
2: but yeah it looks pretty cool and I, you know i do love how sega do release these things you know like the, the plastic power of tower they did with the you know the mega drive mini one and obviously they're doing the sega cd2 with this one as well So, you know, they they do take it seriously. It's just interesting that they had their 60th anniversary last year or the year before, and they did the Game Gear Mini, and now all of a sudden they're doing all these crazy things, which I think are much more interesting that's just classic. It's Sega. bizarre
1: they bringing this out though instead of something like the arcade stick. To me, will be a more logical choice.
2: You know, why don't they make a version of that instead? It's but... one of them, though. You know, it probably turns out that the cyber stick probably sold millions of them <laughs> in Japan. Japan. Um, yeah. um, you know, maybe we will get the the arcade stick, um, which would be really cool to get. That you know, play a bit of Street Fighter on it or something. They need the activator, the activator mini. So
0: um, if you, if oh you, yeah, if you had your dog or your cat, you can. <laughs> Chuck it in
2: the activator mini. us <laughs> see The menace of mini. In games. Yeah. Or, or, um, you, or you're little kid. What was the what was the name of that other one that Sega did where it was like uh it was a pack that you wore on your chest and back and it vibrated when you got hit in oh, games? God, and stuff. Yeah, it's like a body shock. Yeah, like thing. a body yeah. shock thing. My my friend has two of them, so and keeps saying we should play games against each other with them, but I haven't done it yet. But yeah, it, it vibrates and like it's meant to like jolt you, isn't it?
1: Um, you know how good would that be for like virtual reality
2: yeah it would be bring it back Sega. not the cyber stick
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah apparently it's uh, going to be out in japan on the same day that the omega drive mini 2 comes out that's uh, october 27th no one a western release yet as you said but we'll keep an eye on that story if you want to read that and everything else we talked about you'll find them all in our show notes no need to google around and put them all in your podcast app or on our website at theretrohour.com Now, we're going to be talking Tomb Raider with our special guest, Peter Connolly. He's coming up in just a moment. Before we do that, let's take a quick second to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, and that is our very good friends at ExpressVPN. Now, I think it's fair to say we're all big fans of Netflix and other online video streaming services. Kind of feel a bit like sometimes I've kind of watched everything I want to see on Netflix. Don't know about you guys. I think it's called doom scrolling, isn't it? We just go go through and you're like, yeah. And also during COVID, I kind
0: of locked down
1: and uh, rinsed Netflix totally. Yeah, I think I watched everything on the British Netflix uh, during 2020. But if you're paying for Netflix, actually, there's a lot more out there than you get access to normally. So if you're watching Netflix without using ExpressVPN, it's a bit like going to a casino and only being able to play on the slot machines. Why limit yourself? The big money is somewhere else. So actually, By using ExpressVPN, you can access different Netflix libraries that have got completely different content, different movies, different TV series, and you can access these from each country from the comfort of your own home. I know you're a big fan of the American Netflix in particular, Ravi.
0: Yeah, yeah, I absolutely love it. And like ExpressVPN, you know, it, it streams in HD and there's like zero buffering and it also has servers in 94 countries. Now, what I've been watching on the American Netflix is the awesome Walking Dead, if 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 you like that, um, Stargate SG-1 as well. I love Stargate, one of, one of the yeah. greats. And uh, we even talk about Stargate a bit in the interview, actually. And before social media, before all of that, you had email. And, uh, You've Got Mail is also an awesome film with uh, Tom Hanks and Dave Chappelle. You love your rom-coms, don't you? Oh, right? I love rom-coms, yeah.
1: So you can get access to these different Netflix libraries. There are so many of them all around the world. If into like, you know, anime and stuff like that, you can watch the Japanese Netflix and there's so much you can access. So why limit yourself to just one library of Netflix? And actually it works with other services too, like BBC iPlayer, YouTube, Hulu, stuff like that as well. With servers in 94 countries, it's compatible with all your devices too, phones, laptops, consoles, smart TVs, and a lot more. So stop paying full price for these streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. You can get your full money's worth by using our exclusive link at expressvpn.com slash retro. They will know that we sent you and you'll get three months free on a one-year plan so try it right now support the podcast expressvpn.com slash retro and a big thank you to our friends at expressvpn for their support right then next we're going to be getting some stories about composing music for those later tomb raider games with our special guest peter connolly he's next on the retro hour podcast You're listening to the Retro Hour Podcast and it is time for our favourite bit of the show when we welcome on our very special guest. Now today we're so excited to get some stories from soundtracks on amazing games including the Tomb Raider series from Tomb Raider 3 to The Angel of Darkness and lots more as well. Let's welcome on our special guest this week. Peter Connolly, how are you doing, Peter? I'm doing fine, thank you very much. Thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Now, uh, before we get into you know these incredible games and this you know massive series that you've worked on, we always kind of like to go back to day one and kind of find out you know what initially sparked your interest in the games industry. I mean, do you remember like you know way back when you were a kid, kind of your first video game experience then, like where it all began for you? Oh yes,
3: absolutely. Yeah, I mean I'm a big C64 fan. I, you know, I used to kind of I bought games purely for the music, you know, the Rob Hubbard soundtracks, um, you you know, the classics back in the day. You know, it it, it wasn't the game for me. It was always the music, you know. Um, I can't think of any game off the top top of my head, but, you know, I particularly went out and bought, uh, specifically for the music, but I would probably say pretty much all of it, if I'm being honest. Um, But, yeah, it was – I remember listening back to the likes of, you know, Mark Hooksy, Rob Hubbard – um, so, yeah, it was just listening back to that. I used to love uh, reading the Zap 64, and, and you know how there would be music charts every month, kind of thing. You know, uh, Crazy Comets would be number one one month, you know, of course, the Gums would be number one the next month. It was always just something to kind of be a spy to. And I remember listening and thinking, you know, what do I want to do that? So, you know, that's mm. pretty, much, uh, pretty much the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now.
0: It's uh, quite interesting. We had uh, Rob Hubbard on the show, and he basically said he didn't think that there'd be a music industry with video games, you thought it would just be like a little quick niche. Did you kind of think that, or did you think there might be a future in this?
3: I always thought there'd be a future in this. I mean, with the, um, you know, when the music competition got quite fierce on the C64, I mean, everyone was really trying to push the boundaries and push the envelope, you know, and squeezing so much out of of a a tiny processor, you know, that I just thought, you know, this this has gone somewhere. And I really believed, I mean, you know, it'd be great if we could write, kind of relive that era and stay in that era. But, you know, things evolved, things moved on. But I also knew there was going to be a future, and, and but I'd never thought it would be as big as where it is right now. I mean, you go from, you know, your, your three-channel Sid music with a sample channel, and now you've got this, you know, full-on orchestral score, 100-plus 100, 100 uh, musicians, you know, performing in the same kind of genre as what a film score would have been back in the day, you know. So it's 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 evolved quite a lot, quite quickly over the years. It's, um, I think it's going to evolve as well. I think it's it's going to carry on down the path it's gone.
0: Did you kind of get into demo scene music or like any of the music discs or anything like that?
3: I didn't. You know, um, it's it's one regret I've got. I mean, I really wanted to kind of get into that. See, an old co- old core colleague of mine was quite heavily into that. Um, but no, I think at that time I was more interested in kind of exploring the MIDI side of, um, of of music production. It's something I wish I'd have done more of, but I didn't, unfortunately. I mean, I, I, I did dabble with soundtrack and pro track and this, that, and the other. But you know, I was never as apt as what some of these demos that were coming out at the time. I was more focused on making orchestral arrangements or kind of live sound and instrumentations.
1: And the stuff that they could do on the 64, I mean, you know, Rob Hubbard in, in particular, I remember you know, soundtracks like Delta and... Jeez. Commando and International Karate. I mean, some of them. I mean, I think the International Karate track on that was like, was like 15 minutes long. <laughs> it was uh, it's like, you know
3: crazy, and it? it's. Some, yeah. I mean, the boundaries and envelopes that were pushing to get that kind of level of excitement in the game. You know, I mean, where you would sw- he would switch from one. You know, they all did it by then, but he would switch from one sound to the next sound and make it sound you know kind of more multi-channel than, what, than the three channels you were kind of limited to. So yeah, it was just. Wow, you know. I love the story as well. Um, I'm sure most people know this anyway, but the story when he's working on Commando at Elite, he basically stayed overnight when everyone Mm. went home, done the track, had it loaded up on everyone's c 64 the next day when they came in, and this is great, you know. But to get this music, we're going to have to remove a level, and that's how focused and how... Well received music was on the C64 back then that they were quite prepared to remove a level to keep the music in place. You know, it's, um, you wouldn't get that now.
1: What about personally then? How did you kind of get into making music yourself then? I mean, what was kind of your setup back in the day when you started making it?
3: Uh, I started making it. I, I, I think I started off with um, Rock Monitor on the C64, which kind of like went over my head a bit. It was too, I mean, obviously I understand it now retrospectively, but I was kind of, you know, I, I got stuck in with um, Music X on the Amiga and a um, a Roland U 20 keyboard that was kind of you know when I kind of got that set up a minimal setup. I was quite um, that was where I started to focus in on. but musically I've um, I've always played instruments right from a very early age you know, I started off playing the guitar when I was about 5 or 6 I played the cello when I was 9 or 10 I played the recorder violin um, drums this that and the other you know but I never kind of got into the technology side until possibly mid to late 80s
0: so um were you using like live instruments with MIDI then as well, and uh, what what setup were you using for that?
3: No, I just rec- I just sequenced and recorded everything. Um through i didn't even have a sampler back then if i'm being honest you know, i used to have had this kind of um snobbery about sampling <laughs> i don't know why whereas i love sampling now um uh, so yeah i just basically sequenced everything you know i, I had like i said i had a, a Roland u20 which had really nice pianos and strings and you know I'd sample stuff on there nothing nothing too extravagant but it kind of nice bread and butter sounds and i just kind of at that point trying to make things sound realistic and i used to program stuff so it wasn't as mechanical as what it would be, you know, on a sort of, like, a 16-step sequencer kind of thing. So um, that was pretty much how I started, you know. I just tried to make things sound as, is. I mean, you know, I'll probably listen back to some of the stuff I did back in the 89, 90, and I'll probably think, oh, you know, what the hell was I thinking? But, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, I think I was trying to get somewhere at at that point to try and prove that I could make things sound a little bit more natural. Because at that age, you know, I didn't have the finances to hire, you know, live players or a real orchestra. So, um, you know, I tried to get what I could out of the equipment I had at the time.
1: Well, what music styles were you into at the time then and who were you listening to and did any of those influence you?
3: I think so. Um, I've got quite a diverse um, love of music. I've never said... I've never been the type that will like a particular type of music it it's just whatever inspires me if I ever hear a kick drum that just resonates it's you know it's the, I like that track because of the kick drum or it might just be a little you know a little synth hook in there that just like kind of like yeah I really like that doesn't matter who did it or or how it was done you know if it just if it kind of piqued my interest that's that's where I took interest in but if I had to did if I did have to nail it down to a specific band or bands I would think People like the Pet Shop Boys. I think what I did was kind of backed off what they were doing, and um, they were using modern technology, samplers, Fairlights, um, emulators, et cetera, to try and make sounds or uh, compositions which had a bit of realism in them. That that's the kind of inspiration I took. So I mean, obviously, I didn't have the, the finances to be able to buy a Fairlight or you know sit in the studio and do do things the way they did stuff. But that was probably my primary source of influence. Or by any other of bands.
0: the. Uh... Costumes that they
3: would wear. Well. Yeah, that's it. that's just another thing out on top of it. <laughs> You've got to wear the costumes to be in the zone. So
0: yeah, true, true. <laughs> um, I was wondering how you got involved with NMS software. And NMS uh,
3: software, yeah,
0: um, yeah, and uh, Mass Destruction, which came out in
3: 1997. Oh Do <laughs> we need to talk about that? Um, <laughs> okay, um, I think were they the first company I worked for? No, I, I worked for another company before, about about six months or a year before that. It was a small kind of set startup company. It, it's what got my foot through the door, even though the company didn't last too long. It kind of went, you know, went to liquidation within about three to six months of working there. But it did give me a little bit of experience, a little bit of insight into you know how how the the sound side of thing and the music side of things work with video games. So that kind of led us um, to apply to more places. And I think the uh, I think I got the job with NMS in ninety six. And oddly, I was um, interviewed by a guy, and I didn't recognize him at the time, but when I saw on his mouse map the name Cooksey, I thought, okay, this is Mark Cooksey. <laughs> so things kind of t- t- went slightly different in terms of how we kind of communicate, communicated through the interview. But, um, yeah, that that was just a case of, of um, applying to adverts that I saw in Edge magazine at the time. I just used to sort of dish out uh, cassettes at the time. Um, with cover and letters and just, you know, hope that I got a bite and eventually I got a bite. So, and I was there for about a year and a half before I moved to a company that were based in Lancaster and they lasted about a year and that was around the time um, I started core design. So, you know, it's like, it was kind of stop, start, stop, start for a while.
1: Well, obviously then, I mean, you know, when we had consoles like the PlayStation and the Saturn, a lot of it was CD-based audio. Yes. And uh, were you working on those systems at the time and what was kind of developing actual audio for the Sega Saturn like? Because I know you're working on that.
3: Yeah, um, I mean, to be honest, the Sega Saturn, I didn't work specifically directly with that. Everything was done on PC or PlayStation and then was ported mm. over. If anything, you know, if any conversions needed to do with regards to the sounds we were supplying for the video games, um, we would do whatever. But most of the time, you just hand over over the um, assets <clears throat> in a way it went, you know, it was kind of done kind of without you thinking about it. But I've always worked with CD Audio. Unfortunately, I've never done any kind of tracker projects or any, you know, any of that kind of thing. It's, it's something I would love to have done. I have done sort of tracker projects since, but very minimal, you know. But, yeah, I, and that was kind of my goal anyway. I always like the idea of things being produced in a studio, or, you know, a, a stereo WAV, you um, with realistic type of sound and sounds, you know. So, yeah, uh, the music I was always, always involved with was always based upon Redbook standards. Did
0: you do any sound effects at any point? Because I, I saw one called a flesh feast on your, on your <laughs> yes. list. As well. and there was lots of interesting
3: zombie noises and sound effects. And oh, that. my God, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I see myself as a composer, and that's what I always kind of brand myself as. But when I actually look back at my CV and my backlog of work, I've done more sound design work than music work. I've done very few projects where I've worked on both. But in the beginning, yeah, it was a one-man band. You, would, you, you were expected to write You were classified as a composer or a musician, and you were expected to do sound design too or sound effects. You know the whole hierarchy of of, of disciplines is completely, you know, kind of like. Branched out right now, but back then it was yeah. You did the music and you did the sound too.
0: I could just imagine trying to get the sound effects for a zombie game based in <laughs> in a shopping mall. It must have been quite it, funny.
3: It, it's hilarious. I mean, you, you, I can't specifically remember any exactly how I did that, but it was. I do remember moments where we got different people in for you know programmers, artists, whatever. Just said, can you come into the studio for like five minutes and just do a couple of you know ras and who's or whatever. And uh, it was hilarious. You know, it was absolutely hilarious. And some of the guys absolutely nailed it and made it sound great. Other people just came in and it was just hilarious because it was so, it was so like cheesy, you know. Um, it was stereotypical of cheesiness. It was it was, it was hilarious. But um, I actually lost it once. Um, it was about three o'clock in the morning, I'd been working late and somebody came in and did a couple of you know, and it was just so funny that I couldn't <laughs> stop crying for about an hour of laughter. It was just like, this poor guy, I don't think he's ever done any kind of, Recording ever since, I must have put them right off, but yeah, it's interesting to do stuff like that. It is, I really do. I like this kind of like, I mean, the the imps on Tomb Raider 5, is it? That's me laughing sadistically, and then I pitched it up by 24, 12, you know, semitones, and that's the sound. I just love doing that kind of thing, you know, just doing something a little bit odd.
0: I love that because a lot of old video games, you'd get like staff at the studio in the FMV or you'd have like staff doing the soundtracks. Yeah, stuff. exactly. I, yeah. I just love that. It feels so personal.
3: At Core Design, there was, um, there was, a, there was a couple of guys we used to use there. One of them was absolutely amazing and we used him for everything. He was so diverse. He could do multiple, he couldn't speak multiple languages, but he could like kind of come across, you know, he would speak English, but it, it would sound American or it would sound. French, you know what I mean? Um, And he was so good at doing that. And then we would get the the proper, proper, I do with inverted commas, the proper content. To be honest, he was better than them most of the time. So, you know, I would just say, well, let's just stick with using his takes because the work, you know.
1: Well, you mentioned that you made the move, you know, down to Derby to to Core. How did you get the job there then? And what was it like when you started there?
3: Just after I worked for um, In Games Interactive, which um, folded, Early two, th- uh, sorry, early nineteen ninety eight. I forget. It was such a long time ago. I, I worked at Nissan building cars for about six months because there was nothing else going at the time, and I knew like in in the Sunderland area there was some temporary jobs going. So I thought, you know, keeps the synths being bought. So I was working there. And then this job came up at Cody Signs. So I um, I remember going for the interview, and I just thought I'll never get a job at Cody Signs, but I'll get the day off, so I'll head down there and see what goes on. And then within like two or three months, um, it all kind of went through, and I got off of the job. And I was like, "Wow, okay." I was nervous. I was um, excited. I think I think I had a, you know, quite a lot of uh, emo- feelings and emotion going on. Thinking, you know, I'm, I mean, at the time, I didn't know I was going to be working on Tumor and I just assumed I'd be working on what other games they had going at the time. And and I was quite quite nervous that I might not kind of. Meet their match, you know, Nathan did such a good job with what he'd done, and I was technically replacing him, and I just thought I've got some big boots to fill here, you know. I must, I have to make a good go of it, and you're always know, a little bit worried that you're not going to hit the mark. But um, I really enjoyed it, you know. Within the first week, I felt like I knew everybody, and things just progressed from that.
1: Well, obviously, Tomb Raider by then, I mean, it was already a massive brand. It was,
3: wasn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, how did you feel when you found out you were working on that? Then was like a a lot of pressure. To deliver on that, then
3: same again. I, I think it was just an exa- an exaggerated version of me actually getting the job at core design. Uh, I never expected it for one minute I, when I first moved to core design. I was straight on to hurdy gurdy, and I started doing like a collage of ideas for that. And um, Jeremy Heath Smith, he heard the um, the music collage that I did for that, which incidentally went on to be the theme tune. So if you ever hear the film tune, you can hear a kind of chop and change. And that's, that was an original attendance a collage of ideas. Um, right. But he heard that and he really liked what I did. And then he called me up to the office and just says, right, we want you working on the next tumour in it. And seriously, my insides imploded. <laughs> 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 you know, it's like, okay, now this has gone to the next step of like, I've got to kind of prove myself, you know. So I think when I'm under pressure, I tend to, uh, I tend to focus a little bit better. So, you know, when that kind of pressure is applied, I feel that I try a lot harder. So in a way, it's a good thing. But for seriously, it took a it took a while for me to kind of neutralize my um, emotions.
1: Yeah, finding out you're suddenly working on the biggest game that, franchise in the world. Exactly, yeah. yeah,
3: that, <laughs> that, yeah. I had to kind of um, detach myself from that thought because I think the more you think about it, the more anxious you become. So you just kind of think, okay, <laughs> I'm just going to work. I'm just doing some music. I like it, yeah. rather don't. And then it hits you. Okay.
0: <laughs> Did you have um, kind of like a Passover of uh, stuff with nathan mcgree and uh, did he like kind of talk to you and tell you like about the kind of vibes of the previous tomb raider soundtracks or did you go no. and check them out yourselves
3: yeah i went out and checked my stuff i mean the first thing one of the first things i did when i got um, put onto the project was i i not would already played the games because i you know i'd bought tomb raider 2 the year before i started so i i i I was I was familiar with the games and the franchise, but I really you know I, when I knew I was working on it I wanted to kind of scrutinize it and go through it from you know from from A to Z and to make sure that you know where I was heading was kind of a a, a good a continuation? good bit of rest, continuation yeah that's a better word yeah <laughs> from where Nathan was you know because Nathan did a really good job and it, like I say it was there were big boots to fill you know and there's a lot of expectations, but I never had any liaison with him if he got to that I mean the first time I met Nathan um was during my interview um he was kind of just finishing up packing up et cetera, et cetera. and Martin Iverson who I ended up working with he was on holiday at that time so he wasn't there to interview so it was mainly Adrian Smith and Nathan McCree and um, we're a bit of a chin wag as you do you know in the studio about this that, and the other and when I got off the job by that point Nathan had gone moved on to Pastures New and you know there was no none of this kind of like handover um stuff going on I just basically had to analyse what had been done and just hopefully kept kept it going in the way it did I did want to put up my own twist on it but I didn't want to take away the original feel and motif
1: of the of, of the franchise I mean were you given much creative freedom then or was it like a kind of a brief that you had to stick to how did that kind of work uh, It was work? pretty much
3: yeah it was it felt like to me it was total creative freedom I think if something was really wrong they would say something about it but otherwise everything was deemed accepted um i think that's a good thing i think when you're um i mean a lot of the a lot of the companies i've worked with since you do get a kind of breath, and everyone's got an idea on the head of what they want if you don't deliver that they're not if not open-minded it can be quite difficult to convince them to accept what you're doing um whereas with the music accord design it was we had so much creative freedom i think it was just accepted like i say unless It was completely way off the mark, you know. You were just left to your own devices, really. It was a really good way of working because it just felt like you could do what you want to do, but within reason, you still know in your mind where you need to be heading, you know, but you just don't have somebody standing over you and tell you which way you need to go. So it was a good good way of working.
0: I was wondering what the um, setup at Core was like. Did did they have, like, loads of new equipment and a kind of sound studio and stuff? And uh, was it, like, part of the team or a separate place?
3: Yeah, I mean, it was in the same building, Um, we had, we had our own rooms, there was always two, at least, well, there was always two audio rooms, Um, me and Martin, Um, and they were pretty identical, you know, we both had the same mixing desk, uh, for my life, can't remember what they were, we did get them upgraded Um, to Soundcrafts at one point, but you know, we had a, 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 for, for the time a powerful PC, we both had Trinity version 3s, you know, a JV1080s, Martin had a JD800, which it, now I look back and think, I wish I did. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, we're, we're pretty spoiled. I mean, I remember, um I think when I, I, I was looking at say, upgrading some of the kit at one point, and I just went up to, Je- not Jeremy, Adrian Smith, and says, "I've re-, you know, I would love an S3200XL or an S3000XL and um, a Trinity version 3, you know, which has the prophecy board installed. And he just gives his company credit card and says, just order it. So I did. And then he came down 10 minutes out and said to Martin, do you want one too? So Martin got one. I was like, wow. You know, it was just like, get what you got, get get what you want. But obviously you respect the fact that you got what you wanted, so you never abused it. It was, it was quite cool. It was quite relaxed.
1: And was there always kind of an aim to do quite orchestral music? And uh, I always wondered if that was kind of due to like, you know, Laura's British roots and her being quite upper class.
3: I think so, yeah. I mean, Nathan started that whole um, orchestral thing going off with Tomb Raider. So you kind of have to carry on with that tradition, you know. I mean that was all done using JV 1080s with the orchestral expansion board. I had two, maybe three of them at one point, and they were all kind of wired into the uh, the mixing desk with the, the DP four and an Sonic DP four plus, I think it was reverb unit. And I had added setup set up so like a symphonic orchestra, so the string, the the, the violins were to the left. You know, if you if you look in it from the conductor's perspective, the violins on the left, violas slightly to the left, and then your cello slightly to the right, and your basses to the right, and your brass behind, woodwind behind. So it was set up, you know, I I remember having this sheet that I just used to kind of like stick on the wall. So, you know, if if I got lost where instrumentation needed to be placed, I could just refer to that. But yeah, the the intention was always it should sound like a symphonic orchestra. Um, And I think also, I mean, at least for me later on, the intention was to have this performed by a real orchestra. So if the opportunity ever came along, where they said, right, we've got this huge budget, let's get a real extra player, we're kind of pretty much ready to kind of just make that um, transferal. That, that's pretty much what we did for um, Angel of Darkness. We knew where we were going with Angela Darkness, we knew it was going to be orchestral, uh, uh, performed by a live orchestra, so we could do what we did previously, but we didn't have to kind of polish it, because we knew it was going to be produced properly in the studio.
0: So you joined pretty much, they'd finished development on Tomb Raider 2, uh, Tomb Raider 3. Three, three yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you were doing the kind of sound f- for it. Did they leave like a lot of triggers in and places that they said, this is going to happen, there's going to be a sound event, there's going to be this build-up in a level? Or did you have to kind of go through and choose all that
3: and design it? No, I mean, on, on 3, I'll be honest with you, I only did a bit of, um, bit of sound design work. I mean, that was all done by Martin Iverson. Um done a great job. There were some technical, technological changes as well for, on that from the previous two, but it was forward that I really got my um, hands dirty, which, you know, it was, it was pretty much me doing everything, I had to do all the sound design, um, do the music, do the, the animations, the cutscenes, the, the localizations. but basically what happened was towards the end of the project, when the levels were pretty much built and all the gameplay was pretty much in place, you would get each level designer just come in and sit with you, take you to the level, and the editor and say, at this point here, a rat jumps out on you, whatever, you know, or this there's going to be a vista moment where, you know, the camera will pan and shit. So, the, and then the, they would say, oh, okay, then we'll use this piece of music. We'll use that piece of music. We'll use that incidental piece of music. And then they would drop a, a trigger down. So when you pass that point, so yeah, yeah you, you didn't sit and go through it on your own. You actually sit, went through with the level designer artist. I uh, guess and-
0: it was like uh, composing for a film then, if, you, if you're kind of doing it in that way.
3: It was, yeah. The only the only annoying thing was when, when um because it was C D based, when something jumped out on you you still had the two second gap between before the music started. So it wasn't it wasn't in sync with the actual action. So you would get the, the yeah, you know, the dog jumped out of your whatever, and then you'll get the music and then you the um the, the music would fade out, you know, and then the armaments the would come back. So different now, you can do so much more now, but back in the day when you were triggering C D tracks it was a lot different.
1: Well how early on did you get the the storylines and the, the FMVs and was that kind of constantly changing and updating with the kind of tweaking stuff quite a bit? Oh God.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, the tweaks are unreal. You know, uh, it's nice to be able to work on an FMV or an, or or a cutscene, um, cinematic, whatever, when it's locked down. But one thing I've learned, lockdown doesn't mean lockdown. (laughs) It just means it's, it's all right until they decide it wants changing. I mean, there was one particular cutscene I remember uh, I thought, okay, it's locked down. Um, I'll do my pass on it now. And I think I went back, to because everything was on the server, you updated it, et cetera, et cetera, I went back to back to it the next day and everything was kind of the other way around. So rather than Laura walk off to the left, she went off to the right. So you had, you know, you had to kind of flip everything. Yeah, the storylines come quite early. The FMV cutscenes come quite late. They don't really do much with the cutscenes until the levels are built. So you don't get much of it. I mean, sometimes you might get a bit of um, a wireframe idea you know a wire, a wire frame render so you can get an idea of what's going to go on so you compile your sounds kind of line up some you know you, you can't be specific about what frame they're going to land on it you know it's actually locked down but yeah they come quite late but um with regards to level creation i mean like i said everything was on the server so you would just you would just grab the grab latest etc etc and um a lot of the time when i composed i would just play i would just have a, a level um, that maybe had two rooms with Laura kind of just floating, you know, looking at the room kind of thing. That, that would be my inspiration to write some music. So I would just kind of put my hands over the keyboard and just move things around until it just kind of fitted with the visuals that I saw. That was kind of some of the times you would just write something, think, okay, I really like that kind of vibe. Um, that sounds like it would work with Tomb Raider, and you know, 99% of the time it. it just worked you know or it had a place somewhere along the line in a cutscene maybe it's it, lit, it just dropped it would drop in or and when the artist level designers came in it would just drop in on a level so there was a bit of kind of like blindness in the way you work but also you had stuff to work to so it was a, a best of both worlds I suppose.
1: I've always been quite interested in so obviously it, it's a you know creative process and I guess there's got to be days when you're just kind of not in the zone and other days where you really are. I mean, in yeah. terms of kind of your schedule, I mean, was it kind of, you, you were, you know, an office-based kind of nine-to-five kind of thing or was it some nights you were there till like oh, yeah. two in the morning and was it kind of just when inspiration <laughs> took you? How did that kind of work?
3: It was, yeah. It, was, it wasn't It was the night. to 5 think It was probably more of a 12 till 3 a.m. thing. And you would work, you know, you'd, there's no way I could have been in a relationship back then. And I've seen a lot of people's relationships buckle because of you know the crunch at the time it was just it was expected. it was the norm it was the sometimes i'd want to leave early at one in the morning and i would try and slide because i felt guilty if anyone saw us it. it was the, it, it, that was the mindset of how it was at the time you know and i mean what towards the end of the project i would just sleep at work i would just sleep in the office so i would finish doing what i did you know f- three four five o'clock in the morning and i would just snooze there you know feet on the desk until like 10 the, 10 the next day and then crack on you know i think i even had a camp bed in my studio at one point
0: i was i was wondering what were the changes that happened then uh, with the soundtrack and stuff when the last revelation came out
3: all right okay yeah i mean the last revelation was my first was my first stint at doing some music for tomb raider although when tomb raider 3 was approaching completion i did write a piece of music. i remember playing it because like i said earlier i wanted to kind of feel the game, I wouldn't understand where it was coming from and when it was still in development I was getting you know edits of um, of 3 and, and I remember getting to the final boss and realising that was no music there and it just felt like it, it, there was for a final boss it was just minimal so I, I created some music for that so I, the first piece of music for Tomb Raider I did write was for Tomb Raider 3 uh, but unfortunately it was just far too late to get that into the build and go through all the QA checks with Sony etc etc so I keep that. I kept that piece of music for two minute four. I, I redid it, uh, spruced it up a bit, and redid it for two minute four. But yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to carry on the nostalgia that Nathan recreated, um, but I also wanted to put my own identity into it. And I, Nathan used a JV ten eighty. I, I had a JV ten eighty. It just seemed the natural progression. I mean, I think I just did it my way, but with Nathan's um, motif in in mind. I think any composer will you know, let's just specifically told not to, um, will put their stamp on it at some point. I can't remember specifically, but I think, um, especially with the last Revelation theme tune, I don't think I originally had the uh, Tomb Raider motif in there. And I'm not sure whether I thought this or somebody else told me, but I remember think, I remember having to kind of pour it in at the last minute. So, yeah, um, I don't think that the, the, the change was huge. I just think it was done slightly differently. And again, I also, I mean, I I can't speak for Nathan here, but I always had it in my mind that the music would possibly be performed by a real orchestra. But like I said, that didn't happen until Angel of Darkness.
0: um, And uh, I was thinking, like, woodwind instruments are so kind of
3: prominent in these
0: soundtracks. Um, Yes. Why why do you think that really screamed Lara Croft? Uh,
3: uh, That's probably a a better question for Nathan. But, I mean, I I can see his perspective on that. It's very feminine. Woodwind's quite feminine. I mean, and it just... Suits the mood of an English heroine like Lara. It, it just yeah. works for me. I, you know, I, I can hear, I can, yeah, she is woodwind. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, I
0: totally associate it with Lara every time I hear like yeah, yeah. woodwind instruments. Even, even I don't with know whether it was things.
3: You know. Latin. I don't know if it was something that before that that was was referenced towards people similar to Lara, where now that's just took somewhat sort of hold on um, the psyche of, 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 of people. Now that that's the association with you know females
1: obviously with the egyptian theme i mean were you taking much influence from stuff like indiana jones and the mummy or stargate anything like that
3: definitely the mummy yeah i had i had the soundtrack to the mummy so i used to listen to quite a bit <laughs> nice. um i think tumor has also been the female indiana jones i've always had that in my mind whether that's the potential the, ten- the original creators but i think on Tomb Raider 4, there's a bit in it that I, I call the Indiana Jones moment. I think it's on the intro cut scene when, when she's falling down a pit. There's a there's a very Indiana Jones bit. And I remember doing that tongue-in-cheek thing, you know. That it just had to be done.
0: And there's that kind of a core Rick Dangerous uh, connection as well,
3: isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there is, yeah. Oh, what a game that was. That was long before my time there. Like, but I, I, I did love the core games back in the day. So just so, uh... to be vehicle you know and with that history and heritage it was fantastic you know without the Tomb Raider brand as well.
0: I I was wondering about uh, Tomb Raider Chronicles I heard the the team weren't massive fans of it but um yeah how, how did you kind of approach that project and what what was the team's like reaction to
3: it? I mean to be honest for me I was still I was still fairly new to the brand so I was keen to do it you know. Tomb Raider 4 was such a huge job um, for one sound guy, I mean, obviously Martin did help out towards the end, which was needed, you know, and he did a cracking job, kind of like you know, digging us out of holes. But when I look back at it now retrospectively, it was probably a, a four or five man job, really, which you know might have obviously reduced crunch and it's just the fact that we hadn't have out for a certain time. But when I got into five, it was it was really cool because um, it was a lot smaller. Than what the last revelation was, uh, and there was no new. I mean, one of the, one of the deals that the programmers made with management to say, "Look, if we do this, we don't do that." It was that they don't add new features, they don't add vehicles. Um, there was a couple of you know kind of um, things that they wanted in, um, to kind of like seal the deal. But for me, it was great because it was probably the first prod. Well, it was the first Only Tomb Raider where well, I've done it all without the help of anyone else, because I'd already learned what I'd learned from the last revelation. And it was a smaller project, so it was easier to be able to do what you wanted to do. You know, you didn't have to go around as many levels and populate it with sounds, or you didn't have to kind of... Uh, there weren't as many cutscenes and FMVs, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a cool... For me, from my point of view, even though the rest of the team just didn't want to do it, I, I'm not speaking for them, but, you know, that's the kind of impression I got. But for me, it was it, I, I, I was ready to tackle it full on so
0: and I guess it must have had a different kind of um a different vibe as well because it had like those I'd say like matrixy futuristic kind of uh, uh yeah. Metal Gear solid style sections. It did, didn't it yeah? How did you approach that sound wise?
3: Um I would started using a lot more synths. I think with the last revelation it was pretty much um other than the the final one of the one of the boss tunes, I think it was. It was pretty much all kind of strings, you know, French horns, uh, piccolos, that kind of thing. But with that, I, I kind of took more of a synthy approach. If you listen to the end credits, I kind of got. I drew it. I can't remember the game, but there was a, there was a game in the eighties by Atar by Atari that had that kind of feel to it, and I, I drew inspiration from that. Uh, and I did incorporate a lot of synth sounds. and Then I, I did put some orchestral stuff in there as well, so it was a bit of a hybrid. I just basically worked with what I saw. You know, if it looked a bit high-tech, I thought, well, high-tech's not going to do, just be orchestral. There's going to be kind of synth stuff in there as well. Um, maybe, you know, some drums, kind of electronic drums going on in there as well. And that's pretty much how I tackled that area.
1: Well, by the time we got into, um, I think it would have been, what, Tomb Raider 6, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. Angel of Darkness. And obviously then, I mean, it wasn't just a PlayStation exclusive. Also, there was a, a Dreamcast port of that game yes. too. Do you think that kind of opened it up to new fans then? And what was it like kind of working on the Dreamcast as well?
3: Again, it wasn't something I worked directly with. It was just assets handed over to um, somebody who ported the, the game over. I think with Tomb Raider 4 and 5, it was converted to Dreamcast as well.
0: And it's kind of uh, returning to its roots as well, because, you know, originally it was on, on the Sega console that it came out. Yeah,
3: yeah, exactly, yeah. And then basically Sony said we want an exclusive rights deal with Core Design for Tomb Raider. I think that, that was why it, it, it you know, it was pretty much primarily um, for at least a couple of the episodes anyway for PlayStation. And then we were allowed to do a PC version six months later or something, or maybe it was a couple of months later. That was the kind of deal. But um, the, Dreamcast, the, the, the the one thing I remember about the Dreamcast version is, um, there was you know, the technology was a little bit better, but to be honest, I never got involved in any of that, just handed the assets over. But we did, can't remember who initiated this, but Paul Oakenfold did a remix of the Tomb Raider 4 theme that I wrote, which I thought, hey, yeah, Paul Oakenfold, great, you know, take a notch on the belt. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but that was, that was pretty much the, the the only kind of difference I kind of recall with the Dreamcast versions. But with the Age of Darkness, it was like, okay, this is going to be a launch um, title with PS2. You know, PS2 is a, a brand new piece of technology. You know, it, it's everyone's buzzing about it. The graphics are going to be so much superior. We're going to have to rewrite the engine, the, um, the level editors, this, that, and the other. You know, the natural progression from that was to bring better sound. I mean, the the, the chip on the PlayStation 2 wasn't what they planned to be. Uh, at the last minute, because they couldn't get it to where they wanted it to be, which I think it ended up being on the PS3, is they just stuck two PlayStation 1 chips in, so you got double the, the memory, basically. But because it was a new platform, you know, and everything else was new, we wanted the music to be new. And I think I remember sitting there, that was me and Martin, actually, because me and Martin both got involved with this project, and we both sat and said, okay, we've got word, this, you know, want a real orchestra and involved with this, or at least we're going to present our case for to have a real orchestra. And I think we'd come up with a list, um, at the top of the list was, like, the LSO at Abbey Road Studios. The bottom of the list was, like, Peter Lee, you know, a junior orchestra at Peter Lee Shotton Hall. Um, you know, so we kind of went through from what we'd love to something that if we had to make do with it, we'll do with it. Um, but when we went to see Jeremy Heath-Smith, he basically just said, yep, let's just do the LSO at Abbey Road. And was like, we were like, whoa, okay. And that's where the whole transformation happened from, you know, using samplers, synths, s modules to, you know, writing for a full symphony, symphony orchestra. It was, it was really cool. It was a really exciting time in my life. Probably more exciting than getting the gig at, at um, Core, you know. Yeah, first I time would, I had to use a real orchestra, so.
0: I would say, so that's London uh, Sim, Symphonic Orchestra or symphony, isn't it? London Symphony, yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's at Abbey Road Studios as well. a <laughs> legendary uh, Beatles. D- I, I saw a photo of uh, you guys on The Crossing. We've yes, like two oh, radars shooting it across as well. <laughs> oh, what was it like oh, to work there? It must have just been insane.
3: It was. I mean, for me, it was. I can't remember much of the day because I was buzzing. That that was. I was on such a high, not just with excitement. I was just trying to make sure everything was kind of. A, dare I say, orchestrated well. Um, I remember we, you know, we had um, a librarian that was ready to kind of print all the music off, et cetera, et cetera but we had done all that the day before. So we were going around on you know, all, all the chairs, putting the music in order, this, that, and the other. So, you know, we had a lot to do, this, that, and the other. And we were that hyped. I, I, I remember very little of it. One thing I do remember, though, was they performed the theme tune and I think it was the third take where they got it right the first two takes i mean obviously in hindsight and with today's technology we could have repaired the, the error. basically basically the first two takes um the harp at the end the last note was out of tune <laughs> so they made these you know they played it perfectly and then this harp thing was out of tune obviously not these days you could just you know auto-tune it or stick it in you know a door and, and fix it but we decided, you know, let's do another take. And they did another take. And I remember at that point, I went from the control room into the um, live room, uh, which is the studio one. I just stood next to the conductor. And to hear it in all its glory in that capacity was just like, well, you know, this this is something that doesn't happen every day. And it hasn't happened since, <laughs> you know.
1: It must have given you goosebumps, did it, when you first uh, did it?
3: It was unreal. I just, if, if anyone says you highlight your career, it was standing in that room listening to that theme tune being played and they played it beautifully I, it's considering they would never seen the music before they came in picked the music and just done it it's like that's just unheard of you know for, for, it's it, it's out of this world for me so and,
0: and, and you were pretty much going from like cubase to, to a like yeah, full it, live
3: that. orchestra so <laughs> that must have taken songs?
0: some uh translating and
3: effort it did yeah um i mean we did everything in cubase um as you would normally without all the bells and whistles in production. Uh, So you would do your piece in in Cubase, you would arrange in that, you'd give it to an an orchestrator, he would turn it into notes and dots, and um, we would get kind of demos of what the orchestrator did um, using, I can't remember, it wasn't notator, I can't remember what they were using at the time, not it as a complete different thing, but they used some sort of score editor, and we would get, like, kind of MIDI demo versions of what they did. So, you know, we might have, like, a string a, a string playing a sustain. They might get the second violin playing some sort of arpeggio on top of that. So, you know, they, they didn't just like for like it. They, they, they turned it into something that was exciting, you know, that added extra harmonics or extra layers or extra, you know, tones to kind of bring it alive a bit more. So, yeah, going from curious to that, um, it's quite a jump doing something in, on JV1080 and then hearing it by an 83-piece live orchestra. It's, uh, it's, the dynamics huge.
1: Well, obviously, outside of Tomb Raider, you worked on other titles as well, Yeah, including um, Driver San Francisco too. Love that project. So what's kind of your memories of working on that franchise? And did you talk much to Alistair Brimble, who did the original soundtrack? No, I
3: didn't. I mean, I connect with stop Brimble, we don't talk much, but um, I was pretty sound designer on that project. I wasn't involved with music in any way. It was towards the end of the project, um, Ubisoft Reflections in Newcastle were looking for a, a, an extra hand, and I, I can't remember who told me about it, but um, somebody says, oh, you know, at the time I wasn't doing anything, so I kind of applied, and um, I, I went in as a contractor, but I was working in-house, so most people just assumed I was an employee of Ubisoft. So it was just great. I mean, we had a huge team. There was about, when, when I say, like with the original two it was just me and me andor Martin. You know, it was probably a four to five man gig on Driver San Francisco. I think at the height of it, we had about 15 on the audio team. Mm. So it was, you know, somebody was doing that at Mintis, somebody was doing the car sounds, somebody was doing all the um, auxiliary sounds, the, the collisions. Uh, you know, there was somebody programmed, we had three audio programmers. Um, it was just great to be part of a team, um, all with the same kind of goal in mind, you know. Sometimes when you're sitting there on your own, you hit a brick wall, like you say, sometimes you just lose, you don't lose inspiration, but you lose your direction. And sometimes you just mm. need somebody to say, look, are you heading in the right direction? That just puts you back on track. And being in a team of sound designers on Driver San Francisco, and Driver San Francisco was absolutely fantastic because everyone, everyone got on really well, you know. It, it, it was just, it was probably one of my, most enjoyable projects that I've worked on. I didn't have anything to do with the music. I did hear some of the music being produced as and when it was done. And I loved what was done. Um, And I also loved the choice of um, licensed music as well as a lot of licensed music on that. Uh, And I think think the audio director that kind of got involved with all that did a great job because I think the overall sound of Driver San Francisco sounds great. It's probably one of the only games that I've worked on that I, I can play without feeling uncomfortable right <laughs> it's, it's an
0: awesome title yeah i, I love the whole
1: driver series
0: it was just like yeah. so stylish wasn't
1: it? And, and it felt to me as well cause when when that game came out obviously driver three you know was a bit controversial you know yeah. it, the yeah. way it was released and the you know all the, the the controversy that went around about that game but it felt like san francisco was a real return to form for that franchise i think
3: it was i mean i don't think it was received as well as it it should have. It a, it's a great. Mm. If you've played, I mean, you, I'm sure you guys have played it. I, yeah. I, I played. I played with my son. Um, I haven't for a while, like, but we did. And it, we both really enjoyed it, and I just thought, you know, this game is so underrated. I love the storyline. I love I love the feel of the vehicles, the, the physics, the handling. It's just really well-crafted piece of work. Um, it took longer than ant- anticipated. It cost a lot more than, you know, that I ever budgeted for. But at the end of the day, I think it redeemed... It redeemed the, the franchise, but then again, we've not had another driver since, have we? Although, no, no I best not say this. Um, go on then, why not? Um, <laughs> um, Watch, Watch Dogs was originally, well, it, yeah, it was originally Driver 6.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, I'd heard that before. That, that I thought it was like a rumour, but that was it was no, meant to be part of the Driver, driver 6, series. Yeah. I remember All when right.
3: we worked on Driver San Francisco, Driver 5, whatever, the audio director from Montreal came over, who was the... Audio director for Watch Dogs. He came over mm-hmm. to kind of like work out, you know, where we were going with it, et cetera, et cetera, you know. It almost felt like he was there spying on us, but he wasn't. He was a lovely lad, you know. Um, Olivia, I think he's fantastic. He's really good at his, at his job and he's very articulate and uh, he knows what he wants and he knows where he's going. So, you know, but yeah, I think I think that was the original intention. It was going to be Driver Six, but I mean, it wasn't even Watchdogs when I first started working on it. Was, it was another working title. Can't remember, remember what it was, but. Um, if you if you went onto the server and you got the original builds and all you know the, the hierarchy of the of the, of the project it the, the the root folder was called Driver Six.
1: Right, interesting. That's mine. I love Watchdogs as well. But yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like, you know, it's long overdue getting a new drive again. I think it's over a decade since we last had it. It It is, yeah. I feel like it would be good to have that franchise back again someday, wouldn't it?
3: It (laughs) would. Uh, Martin Edmondson being involved in it as well, it it, it was just like, it was needed, you know. Like I say, it took a long time to do and it cost a lot to do, but I think the end result was really worthwhile, at least redeeming it for a future release.
1: Well, Peter, it's been amazing reminiscing with you about, you know, these incredible games that you've worked on. I mean, what, what are you working on these days, then? Anything you can tell us about? I can't.
3: Um, I am working for Tag Games at the moment. We are working on a new IP, and it's going to be huge. I mean, I'm, I'm still kind of, like, looking at the scope of the project and, you know, how, how big it's going to be, and it's going to be absolutely huge. And I, don't, I think from a sound point of view as well, um, I don't think there's going to be any corners cut. I think it's, you know, I think I've got my work cut out to make this sound... As big as they want it to sound, and as big as I want it to sound. So just watch this space. I'm not really sh- We're still unsure in an exact timeline because we're in a pre production phase, but um, I think it's going to be spectacular. So, and I'm going to be very busy.
1: <laughs> Plenty more late nights ahead then. <laughs> um, uh, probably. <laughs> and
3: uh, also, just quickly, our
0: listeners should um, check out the uh, Dark Angel Symphony as well, which was a, a remake of your of your epic tunes <laughs> that
3: Thank is pretty much, yeah. awesome yeah great I loved, reaction I loved on Kickstarter. Doing that. yeah it was it was phenomenal i mean it, there was you know a bit of push and pull to get it done but i think considering what we had to be able to do it i think we did all right you know i mean i can i can look i, I, I can I, I normally look back at my old projects and don't want to know about them <laughs> but um I, that's just natural for people in the music industry who's worked on something for quite a long time, you live and breathe it so much that you don't want to kind of live and breathe it anymore but I actually look back at that and I just think you know, I achieved quite a lot and I learned quite a lot as well, it was my first orchestral recording since Angel of Darkness Um, and I worked with some absolutely awesome people on that as well you know, some people I've worked with with for quite a long time, so it opened doors in that respect, Yeah, yeah I enjoyed that project very much
1: what peter thank you so much for being our guest this week and coming on and sharing some of your memories it's been fascinating talking to you thank You
3: guys sorry if i waffle on too much and i spoke too too broad geordie when i get passionate i tend to talk <laughs> a lot of geordies so not you not might old. need to de geordify some that or
1: something <laughs> we'll put some subtitles in <laughs> exactly
3: that'll sort <laughs> cheers then, peter all right thanks very thanks guys